If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, please join me in turning to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5. It's a psalm written by David, a classic. Love to hear these songs and prayers given by David to the Lord, preserved for us so that we can be encouraged and be edified and know more about the Lord and the world and our place in it. In verse 1, David begins this way. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let them also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Let's pray before we continue. God, thank you again for this morning, for your many promises, Lord, not least of which is the fact that you have promised to us that as we gather in your name to worship and to come before you, you promise, Lord, to be in our midst in a special way. Lord, you indwell our hearts. We are your temple, but you also say that when we gather, you're in our midst, Lord. Um, as the bride comes together, the bridegroom is there to speak and to receive worship and to reveal himself. And so, God, we pray that you would open up your word to each and every heart here this morning. Lord, that your spirit would do a great work and that we would uh, take joy in you, take encouragement from your word and be prepared, Lord, for whatever lies ahead today and tomorrow. God, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. You know, the book of Psalms is remarkable, not only because of how deeply personal these prayers are, and they, and they are. I mean, you're really, in many cases, looking at the journal or the diary of people in uh, very intense circumstances and situations. They're personal prayer books that are opened up for all of history to read. Uh, but not only is the Psalms remarkable because of that, it's also remarkable because of the great variety we find within this book. They were written across centuries by many multiple authors from a wide range of backgrounds. They're written in the midst of diverse situations that touch so many of our own emotions and our own experiences. Such a helpful book, uh, such a profound book, a book that really speaks to the kind of emotions and situations that we feel. Uh, and some Psalms give us the specific biographical circumstances under which they were written. But many, including this one, they don't. Oftentimes, due to certain clues, scholars will take this Psalm, Psalm 5, and they'll 
sort of package it together uh, with Psalms 3, 4, and 6. They'll say, well, if you look at Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6, they're not exactly a unit, but they seem to have some common themes and common words and common ideas, and they sort of get packaged up together. And when you study the book of Psalms, or really the five books of Psalms, you find that the compilers of the book were very thoughtful about how they ordered these songs. A couple months ago on Wednesday night, periodically we show these videos that overview an entire book of the Bible in about five or eight minutes. And we did one on the book of the Psalms and it looked at how these different Psalms were compiled and ordered. It's not a chronological book. Instead, the compilers took all of these songs and all of these prayers and ordered them in certain ways in order to get certain messages across. And so, uh, taken together, these four Psalms, three, four, five, and six, they do give us a pattern where David will talk about morning, then evening, then morning, then evening. And so, some suggest that perhaps Psalm 5 was written at the same time as Psalm 3, of which we do get specific biographical information. We're told it was during the rebellion of his son Absalom. And that may be true. Uh, We simply aren't sure, and we're not told of the historical setting in our text. However, we can sense a bit about the personal setting here, obviously, as David pours out his heart and opens up his mind and his emotions to us so that we can see what was going on inside. David found himself, as he so often did in a time of pressure, a time of difficulty in his life. We don't know exactly where that strain was coming from or what form it took. And I think that's a good thing, really, when we step back and realize, hey, we don't know exactly what was going on in David's life. We just know that it was strain. We know it was pressure. We know it was difficult. We know it was causing him a lot of concern. And it's good, I think, that there are are these psalms that are somewhat generic and nonspecific because each of us have a lot of different situations and circumstances that are playing out in our lives today. If we polled everyone and just said, hey, write down the different things that are going on, good things, bad things, easy things, hard things, we'd be able to see some, you know, sort of common things across the list of different things going on, but then a lot of those situations and circumstances are going to be unique to you or unique to your family, at least in this time that we find ourselves. And so no matter what notes are being played in your life right now, we know that God desires to speak to you and to reveal himself to you through those circumstances and through the days that you find yourself in. And perhaps you, for example, have a prodigal child who has broken your heart. If that's the case, then, you know, Psalm 3 is a wonderfully specific text for you, where a man of God who loved the Lord was going through that exact same thing. And you can go there and say, okay, well, what happened to the faithful servant of God when that happened to them? And you can take some specific encouragement, or perhaps reading the parable of the prodigal son. But here in Psalm 5, rather than a specific formula, we have a broader example, Instead, what we see is a man in prayer, considering his situation and his Savior, and looking back and forth between those two things, looking at a situation, then looking at his Savior, and then looking at a situation, and then looking at his Savior. And he's not only making requests, but more importantly, he comes to some very great realizations. And in the end, the confident conclusion that David will come to is that no matter what the situation or the stress is, his Savior is a shelter and a support and a shield. And the culmination of this prayer is that God, in the multitude of his mercy, is faithful to pull us, his people, out of our self-dug graves and set us on a path to joy and trust 
triumph in life and ultimately over death. And so as David considers these things, he looks into the hearts of his enemies, he looks into his own heart, and he looks up through the clouds into the heart of heaven. And as he does so, I believe we can stop at five points of interest along the way. First, we notice the preoccupation of David. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Uh, We have three little ones at home, as many of you know. A six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a 15-month-old. And right now we're in that time when the baby, you know, sleep training and working all of that through. Tough for the little ones. But if the baby cries in the middle of the night, you know, we'll go in and grab her from the crib and sort of bring her into bed and we'll all go back to sleep. And then some days in the very, very, very small hours of the morning, I'll be jolted awake by the swift kick of tiny soft feet on my face as the baby just mercilessly just pummels me with her little feet, just kicking, kicking, kicking. And I wake up for a minute and I think, what's going on? I think I'm being attacked attacked by someone. Uh, It's just my darling daughter kicking me without mercy. It's certainly an alarming way to wake up sometimes. And then I just kind of nudge her over and I go back to sleep. But this psalm is often referenced as a morning psalm. However, as I read it, it seems to picture more of a man who's been awakened, jolted upright in the middle of the night. Psalm 4 ends with the line, I'm going to lie down and sleep in peace. And then here in Psalm 5 and verse 3, David's going to say, in the morning, I'm going to get up and pray some more and spend that time with you, Lord. So get ready because I'm making that appointment. And so to me, this seems to be the interval in between, between that lying down for peaceful sleep and the waking up in the morning. David's life was full of tension at this moment. His heart and his thoughts were preoccupied with the situation he's facing and something woke him up there in the wee hours of the morning and he turned to prayer. Now notice this, in his preoccupation, David was concerned, but he was also quite courageous. David was concerned. He, he sounds desperate in this opening stanza, and it's because he was desperate for whatever reason. He was asking God over and over that he would hear the prayer and listen and consider what he was saying. And again, if you go back to the previous Psalms, you see elements of this where David often asked the Lord, hey, Lord, will you hear me? I, I, I want to have that assurance that you're listening to my prayer. But then you get to Psalm 5 and he piles it on and just over and over here in the verse 3 verses, please hear me, please listen. Lord, I need you to answer my call. Lord, I need you to listen and consider what's going on in my life. Lord, I need you to intervene on my behalf. Please, Lord. And we can sense the urgency in his voice and in his words. And perhaps you have a translation where rather than the word meditation, you see the word groaning. And that is what this was, a, a, a very uh, sort of primal cry out to the Lord. And there's a richness uh, to the emotion in the language there of what David is talking about. His prayer is not casual. It's not routine. It's, it's, a, it, it's a boy crying out wanting to be rescued by his father. And those of you who are parents, you've experienced that where a child will get hurt or fall or something will be going on and they'll cry out for help and they'll turn to their parent and they'll think, okay, I know that my mom or my dad can intervene and they'll cry out for you. 
It is so instructive to see that David wasn't shy to make these requests to God. He was concerned, very concerned, urgently so, but we see that he was also really quite courageous. There's just a boldness that we see coming out of this prayer, coming out of David's lips. He's going to make at least 10 requests in this little prayer, and he makes them boldly. He makes them with courage and with expectation. I mean, if we kind of boil this down and, and paraphrase it for ourselves, David says here, he wakes up, he starts praying, he says, God, i got something to say, I want you to listen, I want you to think it through, I'm making my appointment for myself later today, and we're going to talk through this stuff again. And I want you to think about it, and I want you to do something about it. And it wasn't pride that made David speak that way to the Lord, of course not. It's that he understood the character of God. He had insight into the heart of God. And he knew that God is present and is mindful of us and that his concern for our lives go far beyond our own. David's not speaking in a proud way here. He's speaking as someone who realizes that the person he's talking to wants to hear those requests, wants to hear those prayers. He's not approaching God as if, you know, he's the pharmacist, right? Where you just kind of go up and you're just like, you give them your little prescription and you just, can, can you fill this? And the pharmacist grabs it and goes and does it. Or he's not approaching it as if it's some, you know, dignitary or head of state. Sometimes in old movies you'll see this or it, when people are talking to royalty, the attendant will come to them and they'll say, hey, you, you're not allowed to make eye contact with the king or you're not allowed to turn your back on the queen and when you come in, you're going to bow and you're going to bow this low and this is how you're going to do it and there's that weird tension and that weird formality. And David comes to the Lord as a boy would come to his father. And he would say, hey, I'm in real need here. And I want you to listen to me. I need you to hear me. I have some things I want to talk about. And there's such a great courageousness to the way that he prays. Because he has great expectation that not only can God address the things going on in his life, but that God wants to address the things going on in his life. And so, it's it's a totally normal thing for David to just wake up here and start praying this bold, courageous prayer full of requests to the Lord. He knew that God is present. He knew that God is mindful of us. And the reason David was going to the Lord was because he knew that God is sovereign and God is supreme. And so, of course, he could bring his strains and his stresses to the Lord so that the Lord could address them. But that realization, thinking about the supremacy of God and the sovereignty of God, quickly turned his thoughts off of his own preoccupation and onto our second focal point, the purity of God. We see in the next stanza. Verse 4 says this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David was a really thoughtful guy, such an interesting guy, really well-rounded, a warrior, a musician, a shepherd, uh, a, uh, a leader, a thoughtful man who studied and meditated and evaluated people. He liked to examine and study mankind. 
and consider the end of man. As he would look at people's lives and look at what was going on in their lives, he would like to study and think through and think, what is the end of that man? What is the end of my, my path that I'm walking on right now? And he would think about those things, but his mind would often wander, as it does here. And usually we see it wandering upward into the presence of God, where David would fix his eyes on the Lord and contemplate the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. And this is one of those times. Such an abrupt change of pace. He wakes up and he's got this strain and this pressure and this urgency. He's calling out to the Lord. He's hurting. He's a little bit freaked out. And then his mind starts to wander as he prays. And he thinks about the majesty of God and the glory of God and the purity of God. And he comes in prayer heavy laden, full of preoccupation. But then... As he looks up, it says, suddenly his thoughts are arrested. And that preoccupation sort of melts away for a moment as he gazes on the purity of the Lord. And David comes to the intense realization that God does not take pleasure in sin. And therefore, sinners have a big, big problem. As he's thinking about all these things that are going on, he realizes, man, God is great. He can address my problem. Man, God is glorious. Man, God is pure. And he does not take pleasure in sin, and therefore, all we sinners have an intense problem uh, facing us right now. Our wickedness must ultimately be dealt with. The wickedness of the world, the wickedness of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived must be dealt with. God cannot just overlook any of it. And the Lord here shows David a glimpse of his plan to bring righteousness to the world and to purge his creation of sin. Now the Lord's long-suffering waits at the moment, but the day is coming where he will fully and he will finally judge sin and judge all the sin of the world. And the only ones who will be able to stand in his presence are those who stand in Christ Jesus. That's the only way we make it through the judgment of sin is if we stand in Christ cleansed by his blood that he shed on the cross to take away our sin so that God can look at us and see the righteousness of his son and say, yeah, you can enter into everlasting life. You you are granted access to heaven. You are granted access to the perfection of eternity. Otherwise, no one is going to stand when it comes to that day of judgment. Apart from faith in Christ, all our good works, all our good intentions are just filthy rags in comparison to the purity of the Lord. That's what the Bible declares in no uncertain terms. The best person you know, magnified to the infinite degree, standing before a pure and righteous God, is in filthy, disgusting rags. And the Lord has to say, well, no, you cannot have access into my glory because God is absolute perfection. And even the greatest human being that could ever possibly live, living the most wonderful life of goodness and and, and greatness and kindness by the world standards is not even close. It's not even a question as to whether they are uh, worthy of heaven and worthy of the presence of God. The answer is, of course we are not. There in the Old Testament, the prophet is given a vision of the high priest standing in all of his priestly garb, the greatest, most glorious outfit that a person could have worn in the world, sanctified and purified. The high priest standing as the religious pinnacle of, of righteousness and following the law and and all of that, and there in the vision, the prophet sees the high priest, and he's in filthy rags before the glory of the Lord. And so, 
Our sin must be dealt with. It's going to be judged. It will either be judged at the cross if we stand in Christ Jesus or it will be judged by the Lord in the day of the Lord. Another psalmist would write in Psalm 118, Open unto me the gates of righteousness that I might enter in. And you know what? God has done that. Through Jesus Christ, He has opened the gates of righteousness so that all who are willing would enter in through that gate, through the door. Jesus Christ said, I'm the door. And no one comes to the Father but by me. But God has opened up the gates of righteousness so that we can enter into righteousness and have our sin dealt with and have our lives transformed and so that uh, we can stand in that day. That's the only hope for the sinner. Those who reject Christ in this life will not be saved from their guilt, but they will be sentenced to eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Evil will not dwell with the Lord. It cannot stand before the Lord. Sin has no place in glory. It will be ultimately destroyed. And we see David gazing upon the purity of God and considering here not only the problem of sin, but the pleasure of God as well. He says that God takes no pleasure in wickedness. And it's a negative example or it's a negative statement. But then the question that must arise to our minds is this. Well, then what does God take pleasure in? Okay, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been born again. And so I'm no longer in that category of people that are facing the judgment of our sin. Okay, well then what does God take pleasure in? That's an important question for each of us today. To realize that we can bring God pleasure. That's a pretty remarkable thing. To realize that I, in all of my weakness and frailty and limitations, God says, you can bring me pleasure. Okay, well how do I do that? As we study the Bible... We find that there are a lot of things that bring God pleasure. And things that each of us can participate in as soon as we would like to. Faith brings God pleasure. In the Gospels, and we're, as we study in the Gospel of Mark regularly here on Sunday mornings, we'd see how Jesus would get so excited when people would exercise their faith. Oftentimes it would say Jesus marveled. And he'd say, man, I've never seen somebody exercise faith like this. When people exercise faith in the Lord and faith in his word, God is excited. It brings him pleasure. Personal integrity brings God pleasure. There in Job chapter 2, the Lord held a meeting in heaven. And he said, have you noticed my servant Job? He's a man of complete integrity. God was excited about that. He wanted to put Job on display. It brought him pleasure. When people get saved, it gives God pleasure. Paul wrote that it is God's want and desire that men would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And while we are not responsible for someone else's decision to accept Christ, we are responsible to proclaim the gospel that men might be saved. And so, therefore, our preaching brings God pleasure. Just to name one more, we learn in Jeremiah chapter 9 that when we exercise loving kindness and righteousness, God is delighted and he takes pleasure in it. And not one of those things that I listed, personal integrity, having faith in the Lord and in his word, preaching the gospel, showing loving kindness, not one of those things is outside of any of our reach. All of us are able to do those things to one degree or another. And so let's each make a plan to please the Lord with our lives and realize that if we want to truly know God and please Him, 
We must be continually forsaking sin and receiving God's righteousness and walking in his righteousness. And so David began his prayer being preoccupied and then he considered God's purity and that led him to our third point, the path of life. Verse 7 says, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. But as for me, considering the wicked, considering the things that they do and how it doesn't please God, David then reigns in his thoughts again. He's looked over the balcony of heaven. He's looked into the hearts of his enemies. And now he looks within and he says, as for me. And David determines to put his desire into operation. Of course, we, you know, we want to be righteous. We want to walk with the Lord. But we must also put those desires into operation. He could not control his external circumstances, but David could control his own steps. His choice was to go to the house of the Lord and to worship toward the temple because of the multitude of the mercy of God. You see, David understood that he too was a wicked man who deserved none of the blessings of God. It's not that he was just like, whoa, the wicked out there, how gross they are and how judged they're going to be. David had a real and present sense of his own sin and his own imperfection before God. And we see that here that he's pleading with the Lord. He's like, man, Lord, here's what, here's what it means to live a wicked life, an unrighteous life, a life apart from you. Lord, please lead me in righteousness. As for me, I want to worship you. I want to walk with you. I want to go with you. Lord, please make your path straight before me. You know, David realized as he described those wicked people in the previous verses, David realized he had spoken falsehoods. He was a bloodthirsty man, a man of violence and war. He had worked iniquity, certainly. Remember, he had gone to the land of the Philistines and he lived a brutal, thieving life. There, him and his guys would just go around town to town, raiding the towns, killing everyone there as he was sort of on the run from Saul, but not walking in the will of the Lord. Of course, we know about his adulteries and his murder. And so any time spent dwelling on the holiness of God would quickly remind him of his own unworthiness and his own transgression. In fact, he would pray in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. And so it's not that David thought he was so much higher above everyone else. No, he had a keen understanding of just how sinful he was. It was only by God's mercy that David was allowed to continue in life and continue in worship and continue in service to the Lord. And he knew it. He was calling out to the God of mercy. He said, Lord, in the multitude of your mercy, lead me in your righteousness. Allow me to be one of your people. But notice there, he knew it was by God's mercy, but he knew that mercy was there and was accessible to him. The Lord wasn't going to withhold mercy from David. He was confident that God had it available and that he would be able to lay hold of it at any moment. He recognized his own sinfulness. He declared with hope and certainty that he was going to go right into the house of the Lord because of God's available mercy. He said, oh man, I I need to go to the house of the Lord because I'm unqualified, because I'm unworthy, because I'm also a transgressor. And so I'm going to lay hold of God's mercy, go right into the house of the Lord and worship and walk the path of righteousness. And rather than continue in the wickedness described in verses four through six, David asked the Lord, Lord, please lead me in your righteousness. I want to conform to what does please you. Make that way straight before me. 
That cleansing and that access is made possible, it says, by the multitude of God's mercy. Perhaps your translation may have it, God's abundant loving kindness. That merciful loving kindness is described as plentiful and abundant. It's like a great multitude, David says. There's a largeness and a breadth to it that it covers the whole world. God's available mercy for anyone, anywhere, no matter what they have done. And then we realize that we not only gain access to righteousness and mercy, but that we are also then called to walk in them. We're not only recipients of God's mercy, we are told that we are agents of God's mercy right now. And I love the picture here in David's mind that he will find mercy and find loving kindness in the house of the Lord. He's like, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord, I'm going to find mercy there, and then I'm going to walk in mercy there. David came not only with requests that he wanted answered, but he came with worship to offer, and he came intending to be a part of the righteousness of God, living out that righteousness as he walked through life. And what a great encouragement these verses are to us, because, you know what, I don't deserve access to God, or his house, or his ear, or his power, and neither do any of you. None of us deserve these things. We desperately need them, but none of us deserve them. And yet God has given us those things anyway. He says, yes, yes, you can have access to my house, you can have access to my ear, you can have access to my power, you can have access to all of this that I've provided. He invites anyone who is willing to come through the gates of righteousness, to enter in and to be hid in Jesus Christ, and not only to receive, but then to become. Become a person transformed by God's loving kindness and defined by righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but something so much different. The life of Christ being lived as we're led in the path of God. And it is no merit of our own. It is all of God's mercy towards us. And there David says, I want this to be the path of my life. And now, Lord, I have enemies. I have foes waiting to trip me up. And so please carve out the way for me straight down the center so that I can walk in your ways. Lead me in that path of righteousness. Not the path of comfort, not the path of success, not the path of anything else. But David says, make for me the path of righteousness. And this is such a test testimony of the proper fear of God. And here David shows that a healthy and a growing fear of God isn't only concerned with freedom from the penalty of sin, but it is concerned with the fullness of Christ actively operating in our lives. Now this reference of his enemies makes David switch his attention once more to our fourth area of note. He's been preoccupied. He's seen God's purity. He's decided on a path for his life. And now he remembers that he will therefore be up against those profane enemies around him. Verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with the tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Notice how in these descriptions just how corrupted these people are truly revealed to be as David peels back the skin as it were and takes a look at these people that he's describing and just how corrupted they are. He uses graphic language to show how dead and decayed a person is who is walking in rebellion against God. And, and it parallels with what Paul said in his epistle. He says, man, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, this dead, decaying thing that is in rejection and rebellion against God? And that's us before salvation. That's our nature, that open grave, that profane and corrupted uh, nature. 
And notice that it's not as if David was describing some satanic blasphemer. He seems to be referencing people around him who are flattering him. He said, these people, they're, they're dead, they're an open tomb. It's the people who are flattering me. That's who these people are. And of course, he looked deeper into the heart. He says the real issue is that they're in rebellion against God, and so they are profoundly unrighteous. They are profane. They're like a fresh grave full of nothing but death, and since it was death inside, death came out. And, and that makes us think, man, wow, I need the Lord. If this is how just a person who is flattering David, a non-believer who's flattering David, this is how David sees him through the eyes of heaven, then man, do we need the Lord. Because even if we're saved, that old profane nature still exists within our heart. And Paul spoke about this at length in Romans 6, 7, and 8, just talking about, man, that old nature, that body of death. Lord, I want to have victory over it. And of course, Christ has given us the victory through his death and resurrection. Through Christ, we have power over that old nature. Now we are no longer dead to God, but because of the cross, we are dead to sin. And the more David looks in and up and around, the more we realize our need for God's intervention in our lives. Lord, I need you not only to save me from my enemies, save me from the situation I find myself in, but save me from myself, that deceitful heart that beats inside of me. Lord, cast that out. Conform me into the righteous image of Christ, an image of mercy and faithfulness. Rather than my life producing dead works, let me speak life. Rather than being an example uh, or a danger to passers-by, Man, God, let me be a light that directs people to Jesus. That I would become not an example of an open tomb, but of the empty tomb, the power of the resurrected life, walking in Christ's righteousness. And notice the contrast there between verses 10 and 7. He says, God, I want to find myself not in the multitude of my transgressions, but in the multitude of your mercy. Well, how is that possible? It's by God's intervention and by our surrender. God has intervened. He's put everything in place that we might have the abundant life that he promised in the Gospels. It's his power and his plan and his pleasure to take a corrupted person and redeem them, conform them into the image of his son. But we cooperate with that by ending the rebellion in our hearts and obeying and turning to God in surrender. That's the cooperation. That's our activity. That's putting our desire into action. And when that happens, we see finally in David's closing thoughts our prospects as God's people. Verse 11, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as a shield. In the Empire Strikes Back, there's a famous conversation between Luke Skywalker and Yoda. Luke is trying to convince Yoda to train him as a Jedi so that he can fight against Darth Vader and, you know, win this great victory. And he, the back and forth comes to a head and Luke finally says, I'm not afraid. And what does Yoda say? He replies, you will be. I knew there were some Star Wars people here. But you will be. Yoda knew that Luke had reason to fear. There were some big stresses in David's life. Some big uh, mountains he was facing. Enemies surrounding him. When he wrote this psalm. Serious pressures. Dangerous things. But in the end he found that as a child of God. He didn't have reason to fear. He had reason to celebrate. Notice, he didn't come to that conclusion after his prayers had been answered, but as he was bringing his request to God, nothing has changed between verses 1 and verse 12. 
It's the same middle of the night. It's the same situation. But he realizes, I don't have reason to fear. I have reason to celebrate. He makes this huge, broad statement, inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore applicable for every believer in every generation. Let all those who trust in you rejoice. Let them uh, ever shout for joy because you defend them and surround them as with a shield. And the word for shield there is not the typical smaller shield held in battle. It's not Captain America's shield that's, you know, kind of right here. Which, why do they just shoot at the shield? Shoot at his legs, man. You're like trained mercenaries. He's just running at them and they're shooting right at the star on his shield. I have an idea. Shoot at his legs, but whatever. Uh, But it's not that kind of shield. The word here that David uses, the word for a larger shield that covered the entire body. In fact, it was so large, it was often carried by a second person to cover up the entire body. And as David brings his thoughts to a close, he realizes that our great God does not have to be convinced to love us. He doesn't have to be cajoled into acting on our behalf. David realizes that God has come onto the battlefield of life already with a shield to completely cover and surround us. Those who believe in the Lord now belong to him. And as we take refuge in Jesus Christ, the Lord goes out to defend us and cover us. And in that regard, God does not only give his people an exit strategy, but he also gives a protection plan. The Lord has given us an exit strategy, how to find our way out of death into heaven. But along the way, he's also given us a magnificent protection plan. He says, and I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to shield you. I'm going to be a hedge of protection around you, covering you, behind you, before you, all on every side. And that's a wonderful thing. In battle scenes, one of the phrases often heard is, take cover as shells start falling or bombs start going off. And what a great order that is for us to give our hearts this morning. Take cover. Take cover under the shield of God. You know, we may be feeling in your life, man, Lord, I feel like I'm taking enemy fire. I feel like I'm just under attack. I feel like, man, I've got nowhere to run. And the Lord would say to you through the words of David, take cover. Take cover under the shield of the Lord. Find shelter in Christ by entering in through the gates of righteousness and walking from this day forward on that path. It means believing that God knows the better way. In fact, he knows the only way that leads to help and to everlasting life. And the Bible explains very clearly that there is one way to salvation and that is through faith in Jesus. We turn to him, we believe he is God. We believe that because he died in our place on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. And now he has a new life for us, a new path for us to walk where he walks with us and he gives us refuge and shelter. Because of all of this, we have reason to celebrate, reason to be glad. Reason to exult in the Lord. Because he has decided to surround his people with his favor. Meaning his grace and his mercy and his love. And so David who began this pressure filled prayer. Just hoping God would hear him. Comes to the end of those verses realizing that he's received so much more than a listening ear. He's received blessing and surrounding and favor and joy and access to all that he needs. And so how can we turn this on ourselves as we bring this to a close? It's all well and good for David, but what about me? Well, we can put ourselves in the place of David. Perhaps you're facing incredible pressures today. We may be eternal beings, but we find ourselves in a temporal world. And sometimes so much of our lives and our energies and our hearts can be spent reacting to the physical problems and the pressures of life. And David would have us see today that the most significant factor of our lives is the God of multiplied mercy. 
That's the most significant factor in your life today. No matter what's going on, the God of multiplied mercy is the most significant thing in your life. And our most important concern is how we can walk with Him along the path He set before me. And I know that in our minds we, we raise those objections. Yes, but I, I have this problem right now. I have this attack going on right now. I have this strain or this pressure or whatever. I'm at my very last moment. Just as David was at the beginning of his psalm. And those objections pop up in my mind. And those issues are real. But the most important element is the God of abundant loving kindness. The righteous God of multiplied mercy. Because he sees, he hears, he knows. And he promises that as we seek first his kingdom and our place in that kingdom, kingdom, as we seek first his righteousness, then all these other things shall be added to us, his covering, his defense, his joy, his guidance, his salvation. The God who hears our prayers doesn't just file them away somewhere. He's interceded and has for each of us whatever we need, no matter where we find ourselves. We have such wonderful prospects because of our wonderful God. And the Lord thy God, the Bible says, in the midst of thee is mighty. He is mercy. He is ready. And then we can Uh, pray to him, consider him, consider what he has granted to us and given us freely and made available. And then we walk in his righteousness, rejoicing in him, trusting him to shelter us and lead us into more of his abundant life. Let's pray.